Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Passages of Summer edition of the 7am Novelist. I'm Michelle Hoover, your host. Now, we all know that the early pages of a novel, story, essay, or memoir are really difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scenes, structure, language, etc., and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. Today, I'm really excited that we get to hear from a local author that I've been wanting to have on the show for a long time, Nima Avashia. She's going to share the first pages of her memoir, Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place. Good morning, Nima. Good morning. Thank you so much for being on the show. Nima Avashia was born and raised in Southern West Virginia to parents who immigrated to the United States from India. She's been a history and civics teacher in the Boston Public Schools since 2003, and now coaches ethnic studies teachers across the district. Her debut memoir, Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer in Indian in a Mountain Place, was a Weatherford Award finalist in nonfiction, a Lambda Literary Award finalist in lesbian memoir biography, a New York Public Library Best Book of 2022, and was named the Best LGBTQ Plus Memoir of 2022 by Book Riot. Um, congratulations, Nima. It's just amazing that you get so much attention for this book. Very, very well deserved. I'm very excited. Okay. Can you give us a quick summary of the book so that we have some context um, in talking about these first pages? Sure. Um, so this is a collection of essays um, that really examine what it was like to grow up at the intersection of queer, Indian, and Appalachian um, in the mountains of West Virginia. Uh, and the motivation for this book was really that um, for a long time, I kind of viewed my growing up as an anomaly, like something that no one would ever really understand. Because when I told people that I was from West Virginia, they really didn't believe me. Um, and so I kept writing it off as this thing that no one would ever understand. Um, but around the time of the 2016 election, um, a book got published that sort of like held itself up as like an explanation for all of Appalachia. And that was J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy. Um, right. And when I looked at that book, like I wasn't in it. And my family wasn't in it. And the families that I grew up with weren't in it. And even the Appalachian people that he purported to be writing about didn't reflect the Appalachian people that I knew. Yeah. And so I started to feel like what had been like this anomalous existence actually like could have value, like that there was a value in in writing a counter narrative and saying, well, maybe that's one version of Appalachia, but like, here's another one. Yeah, excellent. Um, is the book, I've seen it referred to as a memoir and a collection of essays. I mean, I guess these are just kind of, words <laughs> that we throw at books to to categorize. I mean, it, your book is a little bit like Grace Toulouse's book, um, in which we have essays that, that are really so kind of close together that build on one thing, so almost work in a memoir fashion. How do you see it? I wrote it as a collection of essays. Um, yeah. That was sort of how I envisioned it, but I definitely find that it is received as a memoir. Um, and so that's been an interesting kind of space to be in. Uh, I think sometimes then people enter it expecting a memoir and it doesn't do what a memoir does necessarily. And sometimes folks can be disappointed by that. Um, but I didn't write it as a memoir because I didn't feel like I had answers to lots of questions. I felt like I just had lots of questions. And so for me, the essays are an exploration of questions, but there is not in any way, shape or form within me a belief that I have the answers. Um, and sometimes I feel like with memoir, there's more an expectation that like you've moved through that experience um, and you have some insight kind of right. about the whole thing that I don't really feel like I possess. I think I'm like still grappling with with these experiences, um, which yeah. is why I really like the essay form. Well, and you're just too young, right? <laughs> to, have, <laughs> to have the answers. And also, I mean, the word essay, doesn't it mean to try? I yeah, mean, you're that's right. 
tempting. Um, you know, I read something about memoir a while ago. Um, some author was thinking about, you know, I'd only, I, once you write a memoir, it's kind of dangerous because it, it does, it implies that your life is finished. Yeah. <laughs> it implies that you've reached all understanding. And then you might as well just walk off a cliff because it's all <laughs> done. So I think, I think our memoirists are too young and want to keep going. Um, yeah, okay. Um, interesting to think about. Okay. Let's listen to these first pages. Sure uh, thing. Essay. The, we're going to get to hear the whole first essay, which I'm excited about. Yep. So the first essay in this book is called Directions to a Vanishing Place. Drive west on I-64, away from the airport named Jaeger, carved into a mountaintop, away from the Capitol Dome coated in gold, away from the cruelly nicknamed Needle City with its shuttered buildings and staggering addiction numbers. Just 15.9 miles down the road, in between the exits for Institute and Nitro, right after the Pink Pony Strip Club, you hit Exit 47, the exit for Cross Lanes, West Virginia the exit for the place you call home. Cross Lanes, once the bedroom community for management at the chemical plants that sprung up along the Kanawha River during World War II. Now the plants have closed and the community shrinks each year. Hang a right off the exit ramp. Pass, a gas station, another gas station, a bank, a third gas station, a hair salon. Hit the drive-through at Tudor's Biscuit World, home of the eighth wonder of the culinary world, a hash brown, smothered with bottled cheese, sandwiched between two halves of biscuit. In high school, you would skip class in search of this delicacy, the only vegetarian item on the menu. At the one stoplight in town, continue on to Big Tyler Road. Past the National Institute of Technology building. Your dad used to say you'd end up there if you didn't get your grades up. The bank-turned-black megachurch Temple of Faith Ministries, where T.D. Jakes birthed his career as a televangelist. Lower Sun Valley Drive, where country music singer Kathy Matea grew up. Upper Sun Valley Drive, where your best friend's family with its six hardy children used to shovel out the entire street during snowstorms rather than pay for a plow. Pass, a pawn shop whose parking lot is always filled with cars. The bar whose name has changed at least 13 times since it opened. Your middle school alma mater, Andrew Jackson. Linger for just a minute here at the fields and courts of your youth. Every weekend from April to October, kids in stiff polyester uniforms perched on the pitcher's mound and bases. The sound of rubber basketball hitting pavement, then backboard, then swishing through the net was a steady presence on hot summer days. Now the infield is covered with weeds. The bases have been excavated. The grandstand is boarded up, even though it's peak season for Little League Baseball. Beside the field, four poles reach skyward, giving the semblance and structure of a basketball court, but no backboards or nets exist. Tall grass emerges from the cracks in the concrete. Continue on your journey past Mousy's car wash, then make the familiar right turn into West Gate, whose big iron gates perpetually stand open. For sale signs litter the grass, each with a different real estate agent's name and phone number. The developer named every street in the neighborhood after his daughters, Karen, Don, Pamela, Anne. All of the houses share the same blueprint, three bedrooms, two and a half bathrooms, finished basements. Even 20 years after moving out, you could stand blindfolded at the front door of any house in the neighborhood and walk through it without stumbling. Head straight down Dawn Street, take a left on Karen Circle, then finally a right onto Pamela Circle. Drive past the house that was yours throughout childhood, acquired by parents who were known as Rita and Doc to everyone in the neighborhood. A tiny maroon and white hand-painted sign written in your mom's distinctive Gujarati-turned-English script announces the house number, 5303. The garden has been replaced by grass, the basketball hoop torn down, your mom's unruly mint patch mowed over. 
No trace remains of the giant American flag your father taped on the door after 9-11. Of your parents' immense efforts to Americanize, only the rose bushes endure. Descend the gradual slope of Pamela Circle, where you learned to ride your bike. Your uncle's bata sandals flipped as he ran alongside you. He held the seat to help you stay upright, didn't let you go till you told him you were ready. Skim over the patch of warm concrete where you lay in the summertime and stared at the multitude of stars shimmering on a navy blue blanket of sky. Past the Lunardini's house where you taught baby Nick to say ball by tossing a basketball up and down in front of his bedroom window every morning on your way down the street to shoot hoops. Past Mr. Woody's garage where he taxidermied animals whose beady glass eyes sometimes still haunt you in your sleep. Past the porches where you used to sit with Mr. Starcher and Mr. Casto in the evenings, your 11-year-old self nodding along sagely as they discussed the day's news. Occasionally, when talk of the plant came up, you'd interject with commentary pilfered from your dad's frustrated nighttime phone calls. Past the double hill between the Carneys and Monday's houses where you whiled away hours of childhood. Summers, you played king of the mountain, wrestling with your friends for positioning at the top of the hill. Winters, you crashed your sled into the icy creek with glee, then hauled it back up the hill and rushed back down again. Past the streetlight that marked home base during games of spotlight every night of every summer between 6 and 16. Its daily illumination coincided with your mom yelling down the street that dinner was ready and you needed to come home. Past the two basketball hoops diagonally placed where you would play for hours, barefoot in the summertime and snow boots in the winter. Lee, Wes, and Andy were your steadfast playmates in these games. But early mornings with Mr. Withrow are what you remember most. The redheaded surrogate American dad who shot hoops with you, gave you driving lessons, grew figs and rhubarb for you. He died asleep in his armchair a few years ago, but you can still hear the triumphant cry he made every time he scored a bucket. The banks are open. Stop for just a moment at Mrs. Carney's house. One of the only neighbors from childhood still living on the street. Her golden hair is whiter, her body smaller every time you visit. You sip her famous sun tea, and she updates you on the lives of the people who once populated this street. Those who've moved, those who've married, those who have died. Stare hard at the pink carpet, the antique walnut secretary desk, the grandfather clock, the paintings on the walls. The house feels empty without the sound of Mr. Carney's warm voice inviting you in for meandering chats that would sometimes start before the sun went down and not end until after the moon came up. Near the end of Pamela's Circle, the last house on the street once belonged to a smiling family torn apart by divorce in the late 90s. Now, the single-story house, red brick with white trim, has come off its foundation and edges towards a sinkhole. The windows are boarded up, and an eviction notice on the door declares the house uninhabitable. The ramshackle conditions of abandoned mining communities in the southern part of the state creep onto the very street where you once lived. Drive out of Westgate, past the roses, the basketball hoops, the street lights, the plywood over windows, the grass coming through the crocs in concrete, the headless basketball hoops, the endless rows of for sale signs. Head back down Big Tyler Road onto the ramp for I-64, away from the legions of loved ones who are slowly leaving too. Great. Okay. Wonderful. Um, the title of this alone, Directions to a Vanishing Place, instantly um, catches us. And what's so sad is this is a ghost town. I mean, they're the only person that we see in the current drive is Mrs. Carney. Mm -hmm. And even she's living in memory lane and Mr. Carney is 
gone. So even her house is a ghost town that where the uh, little league baseball team is supposed to be playing is the is all, you know, grown up the the field is unusable the pets. So there's just a lot of, you know, I actually there's areas of southern Iowa that feel like this to me with yeah. burnt out houses that um, are still standing and they just don't tear them down. It's it's a very strange feeling. It must be very strange for you and sad for you to to go back. How was it like for you to write about this place that you know so well, but kind of don't know so well? I don't know. It's because it's changed. Right. I think that's what I'm trying to get at in yeah. these essays, right? Here's this vibrant place. The place in my mind and in my memory is so vibrant. But yeah. like when I actually go there, that vibrancy doesn't exist anymore. Right. And so yeah. I'm trying to reconcile like my nostalgia effectively for a place that doesn't exist anymore, um, which is very much how I, I think felt about Appalachia for a long time um, was that sort of like I had this construction of home, but like it was a construction, like it was in my mind. I couldn't actually go there anymore. Like that home doesn't exist. My parents right. don't live in that house. People don't live on that street anymore. Right. So it was this sort of like attempt to sort of, I think, surface that feeling of like what it what it's like to try go to go home when home doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, uh, Population decline in rural America is a real thing. Um, Charleston, West Virginia, which is the closest city to where I grew up, has lost almost half of its population um, in the time since I lived there. Used to be around 80,000 people. It's around 40,000 people now, right? So mm -hmm. that sort of like notion of like people leaving and sort of like institutions kind of crumbling and that geography is just sort of like feeling like it's hollowing out, I think, is a shared experience for a lot of people um, who who consider uh, Appalachia to be home. But also, I don't think it's exclusive to Appalachia. I think many, many small towns in America, regardless of where you are, um, have that same feeling of like people have left, but the buildings are still there. Yeah. Um, um, I also interviewed Idra Novi, um, whose most recent book, Take What You Need, and she also uh, grew up in Appalachia. And it was the same image of of one of the the main one of the main two point of view characters living on a street where there's just for sale signs and burnt out houses and and just a sense of abandonment and then what do people there do there that that are remain there's there's almost nothing for them and then I love the end of this because it, it was rather surprising so these are directions to a place and yet the end is they they stop you know, the you, the the second person, the narrator is directing it to a, a you. Um, they stop at Mrs. Carney, but otherwise this is a drive-through. This they, they are leaving. Um and uh again, just that sense of loss. Um, there's a lot of feeling here, even though otherwise it just becomes kind of a list of memories. Yeah, that's right. Uh, it really functions like a list. Did you intend it to have you written other essays that that work like lists? Because I think this works quite well, because it could just be rather emotionless, but it doesn't. Yeah, I actually, two other essays in this collection are lists of a kind. One is called A History of Guns, and it is literally a list of sort of my experiences with guns and my shifting understanding of sort of gun culture. Um, mm -hmm. And the other is a list of spices um, that are spices that were really formative in my growing up that sort of like 
were where Indian cuisine and Appalachian cuisine kind of met. Um, and so I actually, I think the list essay for me is a really helpful form um, because it allows you to take what feel like disparate, tiny disparate moments or just like things that by themselves are not enough for a full essay. But if you can get enough of them together, you can create a narrative arc through them. Yeah. Um, and you can create emotional resonance by thinking about like, what are the things I'm listing? How am I characterizing them? What's the experience I want you to have as you move through this list? Um, it's a form I really, really, really like in that way. It's interesting because you it allows you to do repetition in an interesting way. Mm -hmm. So like early on, you have that you pass a gas station, another gas station, a third gas station. I mean, again, this is a place where you drive through. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm saying this from a, I grew up in Iowa, which is considered the drive through state. Um, <laughs> so. And that's what everyone says about West Virginia too, right? Like most people living in, in Massachusetts, most people, when I say I'm from West Virginia, like if they know anything, their response is like, oh, I drove through and it was beautiful, right? I drove through and it was beautiful is the most people have about it. So I yeah. think that's exactly right. In some ways, what I'm trying to do with that first essay is like, okay, but like, what if you actually got off at one of these exits? Like, what what if you were to to take a minute and like, not just keep driving, but go in and see what's there? But that the repetitions accumulate in a nice way that I think would be hard to do if you're not doing a list. Mm -hmm. um, and the repetitions of of empty images and em empty spaces um, create what you want to say in the essay without you having to interpret it for us or make sense of it for us. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that damn holy cow, home of the eighth wonder of the, the culinary world, a hash brown smothered with bottle cheese sandwich between two halves of biscuit. If that isn't rural America, I mean, every place <laughs> has its own heart attack sandwich. That's right. And it's vegetarian, which yes. <laughs> is amazing. I'm sure. I'm sure. Like you, you feel like you want to kill yourself after you eat it, but the experience of eating it is amazing, I'm sure. That um, image has been so lovely because um, for people from West Virginia, Tudor's Biscuit World is definitely like a, um, you know, it's something we all know really well and are familiar with and have love for. And so, so many West Virginian people have just said to me, like, I never read another book where Tudor's Biscuit World was on the first page. Forget like anywhere in the book. They're like, it's mentioned on the first page of the book. Like it sort of establishes your Appalachian ethos from like page one. Well, and again, what you're trying to do is represent a place and time and people that other people simply don't understand and don't That's see. Right. Uh, That's right. So yeah, um, so people feel seen. Um, so I just I just um, interviewed Amina Gautier for her story collection. And we went through a, a decent bit of her first story. And then she talked about how that story set up the collection or helped her set up the collection. Um, in your mind, I mean, was this always the first essay that you had in mind for the collection or did you kind of shift them around or how did you approach organizing them? This was actually the first essay that I wrote in the collection. Okay, great. Um, and then after I'd written everything else, it felt to me like it both needed to come that it needed to come first, both because it came first in my mind, but also because um, I was going to be writing about a place that for readers outside of Appalachia was very unfamiliar to them. Mm -hmm. And for readers inside of Appalachia might raise some feelings because I haven't lived there in 20 years. Right. And so I needed this essay to do two things at once. 
I needed to make it force non-Appalachian readers to be really proximate, right? There's a lot of viewing of Appalachia that is from the outside, that is from this place of judgment and often disdain that I did not want to infect this book. I didn't want a reader to feel like they could be outside. So -hmm. for that non-Appalachian reader, what I'm doing is I'm like taking your hand and I'm being like, no, no, you're in the car you're right here with me. Like you don't get to sit outside. You're, you're on the trip with me. We're doing this drive together. You're going to be as close as I can get you to this story so that you are not experiencing it from a place of externality or judgment, but you're experiencing it from like as close to my experience as you can. And I try to do that again and again in the book where like, I'm going to put you in this ritual with me, right? You're going to do the ritual with me, not Mm -hmm. watch me do it. So that was like the objective for a non-Appalachian reader. And for Appalachian readers, I felt like I did need to establish my ethos. Like I had to make sure that people who are Appalachian who are reading this book didn't throw it down after five pages and be like, this person hasn't lived here in 20 years. They don't know what they're talking about. Or they're trying to talk about things that they don't understand because they don't live here anymore. Right. So I'm really trying to establish for those folks that like, I'm not trying to pretend like I'm an expert about Appalachian now. I'm yeah. trying to evoke and elicit what that experience was like for me growing up and what the resonance of been of that has been through my life. But I promise you, I am not trying to write an Appalachian explainer. I'm not trying to do a hillbilly elegy part two. Like that's not my goal here. Um, don't don't see me as that kind of writer, right? Who who's who's going to pretend like I can talk about the issues of your current day with with any intimacy, given that I don't live there anymore. And right. so sort of trying to meet both of those audiences at the same time through this essay. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so a number of our authors that are writing about, um, well, that went through the, the, that got their books published in the U.S. Um, and, but are writing about places that um, might not be as well known within the U.S. Because I've experienced that as an Iowa writer um, people consider Iowa exotic because they've never <laughs> been there and it's just, <laughs> you know, and they probably, well, they won't go. Um, and so I, I kind of have to both bring them in and explain it and uh, translate this place to them. Um, uh, but also that I don't live there anymore. I, f- I feel the same. And so it's the use of the U is interesting because you're basically pulling the reader in, but then the U changes because the U is also the people that are there, the people that already live there. So it alters. It's a really interesting way of thinking and directly addressing the audience and then changing your mind about the audience too. Who the audience is, yes. That's, so, that's really difficult. Right. Was this always in second person? Yep, it was always in second person. And it was always, I think, um, that notion of directions was always just the way I thought about it because as someone from a small place, you know this too, but driving is such an integral part of small town life like it just is so much of what you do even like for social stuff there was nothing to do where I grew up we drove right and so also I think pulling at that thread of like this is how we're going to move through this story like we're going to move in the car because the car is where everyone is moving um directions sort of allow me to set up that that kind of movement also which comes up multiple times like driving is another sort of like um it central element of like how relationships get built with different people, how sort of we explore relationships in multiple essays in the book. Yeah. And our, um, so then the second essay, it moves into first person. Mm-hmm. How many times do the majority of the essays in the collection, are they in first person or are they in, how did you approach that? 
the vast majority are in first person. Yeah. Uh, there is there are I think only a yeah, I think this one is in second person. I think this is the only one that's in second person. There's one that's kind of in a sort of in a third person in the sense that it's like uh, looking at this this character who I call the magician and it's sort of written in that way of like talking about their life, but most of the essays are first person. Starting in the second person was definitely I think a risky you know, people, people often say the second person is risky, um, that it can be off-putting. And so like putting an essay that's in the second person as the first essay in the book did hold a little bit of risk. But I also, again, from that, from that really strong feeling of wanting it to be like, if you're making the decision to read this book, like you are implicated in this book, we're all implicated in this story. Like I kind of wanted the you to sort of do that from the beginning. And if you don't like it, okay, don't keep reading. But like, if you're going to keep reading, you're going to do it from really close. Right, right. Because the the second person, it it makes the reader be something or do things that the reader might not want to do. It kind of That's puts right. a spotlight light on the reader. Um, I think it's easier to use that second person in shorter pieces. Yes. There have been a few novels or longer pieces that have used the second person. I'm not sure if there have been memoirs. There must be a few memoirs that use the second Oof, person that would be very hard but it'd be because it's so because because it's both the problem of the reader can resist it but then it could also feel like we're being shoved away from the narrator um that there's a greater distance and that the narrator doesn't want us to get close to what is actually happening so that right. it, it kind of has both have you how have readers responded to the opening with the second person you know I think it it is really interesting like I think the second person can come off feeling very didactic mm. right and so I think you're right that in a longer piece like it can be off-putting or it can sort of feel like you don't you don't want me to come to my own conclusions like you're gonna just tell me all of them it is where I think the lyric form like helps you a little bit because it's directions, right? And directions are always in the second person. Right. Um, like right. that is the form that we're inhabiting here. So it actually gives you permission to be didactic a little bit because you're using that form. It's different than if I just wrote a second person essay that didn't have that form. Um, I do think that the form allows a kind of permission that wouldn't exist otherwise. And mm -hmm. so then the didactic of the directions gets gets interrupted by those like little moments of turning inwards or sort of giving you like a little bit of insight that's more than just the like turn you're making. Um, mm -hmm. But but I think because it has been, it is read as directions, I don't think it lands as hard on readers. Like I think they kind of have been like, oh, like, I mean, the number of people who are actually specifically from this area who have like said, like, I never thought like my drive like would be on the page. Like I never thought that like, the things that I saw and I knew as like my day to day would show up this way in a book has been, I mean, just so many people and people I don't know, like, although mm -hmm. I grew up in a small place, I didn't know everybody. And there are people older than me and younger than me who share this drive. Right. Yeah. And so their feeling has just been so much one of like resonance of like, oh, like we're all that you, like I am that you, I do that drive. Right. Um, and then I think for readers again, who aren't from Appalachia, it has I think for those folks, they've been more struck by the idea of the form. Like the content hasn't been as much the, um, 
yeah, it's 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 been a response to the form of like, oh, like this is a really interesting way to start. I haven't seen someone do this before. Like it's been that that's been the source of surprise for them. Mm, that's interesting because yeah and people are used to well some people don't take directions very well but a lot of people are more used to at least hearing directions yes um, so we're used to being in that position you know Nima I mean it makes it feel like uh, there's a lot of writers that are always searching for why am I doing this um why is it important but you seem to have your importance I mean what you are gifting um, by representing this place, but then also not representing this place and being very careful about it um, and what you're giving to other Appalachian um, readers by putting them on the page just um, seems vital. Like we just need books like this. Um, and so so you're getting a lot of emails and stuff, people responding in that way. Yeah, I mean, it's been probably the most like unexpected loveliness of this yeah. whole process is that at least once a week, I get a message from an Appalachian reader who just is sort of talking about how seen they feel and yeah. how like they've never felt seen in a book like that before. And it's the range, like very few of them are queer, they see an Appalachian people. There are only, you know, a small handful of people who have that instead of intersecting identities. It's often people who just share like, maybe like are queer in Appalachian, right? Or maybe are South Asian in Appalachian. Like usually they share two. Sometimes they just share one, which is the just sort of like Appalachian identity. Um, but yeah, it's been kind of unmooring in a way, like in a good way, just like um, to get these messages that both speak to um, how lonely I think sometimes people are or like how alone they feel in their identity and then mm -hmm. like what the power is of a story and helping someone feel less alone mm -hmm. um, and and it shouldn't surprise me because I know that from being a kid and like being in a world where there were no books where I saw myself and like trying so hard to like approximate the relationship between my identity and Anne of Green Gables or whatever I was doing to be like, well, I kind of see myself over there, right? I know that isolation. I know what that loneliness feels like. I don't think I realized that like I could write a book that would be a salve to that feeling for some people. Yeah. yeah. It's been really, really powerful to sort of like see that happen. Well, and so, so I'm not queer, I'm not Indian, and I didn't grow up in Appalachia, but I, but there's so much here that I see, there's a mirror here for me as well that I'm sensing, um, just because I grew up in a more rural place. Mm -hmm. um, it's just, it's just a nice, um, yeah. Uh, uh, and I feel like, you know, when we have like, things like 9-11, or um, the election that strikes fear in our hearts or um, uh, the pandemic, um, searching for your why. Why am I doing this? A lot of writers, it kind of freaks them out, but I think it's important to be forced to, to search for your why and to always go back to why am I doing this? Because yep. it gives you more of the heart of your story. Um, yeah. And I'd add to the why, I'd add the for whom, yeah. right? And that for whom can be for you. Like, I don't think that right. there's any shame in the first audience for your book being yourself. I think the first audience for my book was myself. Like, yeah. there was no other book that where I could like fully be mirrored. So I wrote a book that mirrors me, right? That's first. I know yeah. that. And I think that's okay. Yeah. Um, I think that that's important. And I think you can then think from that place to like, and for who else, right? Um, right. because if you know who your audience is, I also think that's very clarifying. 
Um, and I also think it allows you to think about success in different ways. I see, see so much like, um, disheartened feelings among people when they write a book and it doesn't hit whatever the external markers of success are. It didn't get the review in this publication or it didn't end up on this list or whatever those, those sort of external metrics are. For me, I think having a lot of clarity around who this book was for really made it so much easier to turn off all of that noise. Right. Um, because as long as I was like in conversations with folks in Appalachia about my book and what I was getting from them was like resonance, resonance, resonance. And then when I would talk to people up here who were reading my book and it was making them be like, oh, I didn't think about Appalachia that way. I didn't think about it that way. I was like, okay, this is doing what it needs to do is doing what it needs to do in both of these places. Right. And that, that for me is the feedback that matters is like, I wrote it for these audiences and it's hitting those audiences in the ways that I hoped it would. Um, so yeah. whatever else happens is like icing, right? I can be like, yay, great, that happened, but it's not where I'm locating my success. I'm locating yeah. my success with the with that why and that who. Yeah. Um, I, and that, so I, I work with a lot of writers and I oftentimes will ask them, well, who's your audience? And a lot, lots of times I get the answer that they'll say, well, everybody is my audience because they don't want to limit themselves. They don't want to admit that's, that someone, this, that their book might not be for somebody. Um, and so there's a fear there. Um, there's a fear that they're biting off a smaller niche or something, but I think you need that specific audience to then get to the universal the That's same exactly way you right. need the specific character to reach the universal because yes. I am not your particular audience for this but I also but 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 I will read it and love it anyway so you you find that particular audience it just gives your book more attention and greater meaning and then the wider audience will find it anyway yeah and the wider audience then doesn't end up necessarily being like as like hit by the detail of what something smelled like or felt like but those specific details I think allow them to sort of live beside your world right yeah um, and that, but your world is like so fully built that they can do that. I, I am a big fan of that. I mean, I think, um, like I heard, um, Iman Vellani, who's the actress who played Miss Marvel in the Disney series. I, I love that series, but she talked about how on that show, sort of one of their goals was this idea that specificity is representation, right? The, the tighter you get the details, actually the more seen people feel, even yeah. people who aren't from your community, because you're, there's intimacy in those details, right? Like that's where people feel like you're letting them in is when you really bring the magnifying glass in and you're like, this is just my world, but I'm going to bring you into it. Yes. Um, that's yes. where there's so much power, I think, as a writer to really bring people and get them proximate to your story. I also think that's where we build the most relationships, like mm -hmm. both between the, the writer and the reader, but also among readers. Like there's a kind of empathy and understanding that comes from that kind of proximity um, that I don't think you get when you're sort of like not as clear about who your audience is. Right. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And hon, I'm I'm eating that cheese covered sandwich. <laughs> right, right. Right along exactly. with and then regretting it. 
Yes. Several hours afterwards. Okay, everyone, I need to get you all back to your writing desk, but it's just been wonderful, Neva, to have you here with us. Um, everyone, you can find our full schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as on any of your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, it would be really great if you follow, rate, and or review our podcast, because that makes us look really cool and then other people will want to follow rate and review and listen to all right Nima one last thing what advice do you give to authors about their own first pages I think it's exactly what we we're just talking about your first pages need to establish who you are to your audience yeah. you need to be really clear about your audience and your why and your own identity in writing those first pages that's for essays um or for memoir I think in both cases but it's really that idea of like, how do you establish that relationship with your audience in the beginning pages? Because um, those are the folks you're writing for and they want to feel that right from the beginning. Absolutely. I think it's true for fiction too. I think it's true just for fiction. I will say that everyone, all you fiction writers out there. Okay, Nima, thank you so much for spending your time. I really appreciate it. And everyone get to your desk and get some good writing done. Thank you. Bye.